something <clears throat> something that always interests me is when people who are coming from different places, different vantage points, all kind of end up in the same place at the same time. And it's something you see with what's called the zeitgeist, where, you know, it's basically the the mood or, or the, you know, psychological, even psychic climate of a given time. You've probably heard the terms zeitgeist before. I try not to use it. It leaves a bad taste in my mouth. Maybe the word itself, I don't know. But it's uh, it's still a good word. I just, for whatever reason, just avoid using it and try to find other ways of saying the same thing. But that's what I'm talking about. And that's the thing that's always so interesting to me about the zeitgeist is that people can come from all kinds of different places. And yeah, sometimes there is some sort of crossover influence. Sometimes there is something, that there is kind of a mutual influence that crossed over between different groups of people and all kind of drew them in into the same spot, into the same headspace. But sometimes it truly is coincidental. And uh, maybe coincidental isn't even the right word, but what I'm getting at is just that it wasn't planned. It it wasn't people responding to the same prompt or influence. They all ended up there on their own. You could say it's faded. And I mean, I'm, the way I'm talking about this sounds very dramatic because the funny thing about the zeitgeist is it can be something very small and minor and petty. I think what makes an idea like the zeitgeist, the zeitgeist is the fact that it includes everything. And I know from my own experience that sometimes I've learned the most about what's going on in the world around me at a given time by paying attention to the smallest detail. Because I think we, sometimes, you know, we, we talk a lot about like looking at the bigger picture. And that's basically what the zeitgeist is. It's like the bigger picture of what's going on. But there's so much kind of cliche language about the bigger picture. I think we get too hung up trying to look only at that by being like, oh, I've got to look at everything like a magic eye. I've got to unfocus my eyes and, you know, climb up a little higher on the watchtower so that I can see everything. I have to pay attention to everything. But I think sometimes when you try to look at everything, you have even less of an idea what's going on. Because you're not even sure what to look at. You're just looking at this mass that actually doesn't even look recognizable at that point. Like if you're climbing a mountain and there's a, a town down below that you can see from the mountain. Yeah, that's going to give you a better idea of like how the town is laid out. It's going to put things in perspective. That Oh, that's just a little town down there. And this is the way it looks from up here. But to actually know the town you have to go down and go inside the town and i think it's the same thing with the bigger picture where i think sometimes you actually have to focus on a smaller detail and kind of follow that and see where that goes and that'll actually help you understand the bigger picture by focusing on that detail and just following it watching it but i there's a lot of cliche language about that, about looking at the bigger picture. And there's something to be said for that, too. 
sometimes you can get lost on one little detail. Sometimes you can get distracted by some pointless little detail and you should actually take a couple steps back and be like, okay, when I take a couple steps back, I can see more of the landscape. I shouldn't have been focusing on that one silly little thing. So it's a back and forth as usual between, you know, learning. I mean, it's as above, so below. I mean, I, I wasn't even thinking that when I brought this up, but it really is as above, so below. The fact that you can learn something about the whole, the larger whole, by paying attention to one small element of that, one small detail. And then you can learn something about that small detail by paying attention to the whole. They tell you something about, um, I mean, the relationship is that they, they each tell you about the other one. But it is a similar idea to as above, so below. And it's hard to avoid that. It's hard to avoid that coming up. You know, understanding the macro through the micro. Because they do behave similarly. But getting back to this idea I mentioned at the start about people coming from different places and all ending up in, if not the same place, a similar place. And just to get outside of this abstract swamp that we're in right now, an example would be the trend towards spirituality and religion in recent years, of which I'm, you know, possibly, you know, I could be accused of being a participant in that. Maybe I'm a part of that. I'm not afraid to be a part of that either. I mean, I think I've definitely gotten more explicit about it. I don't know. You know, I don't, I don't know that I would consider myself a direct participant in... You know, I'm not one of these people who, who's getting baptized a Catholic. I'm not calling myself anything, but I, I think you could accuse me of being a part of this whole thing. Being a part of that zeitgeist. Because, of course, there are zeitgeists within zeitgeists. And one of the zeitgeists within the larger zeitgeist in the, in the last few years is people who otherwise considered themselves a, agnostic or atheist, veering back towards spirituality and religion. And you can see in some ways where there, are, there is this sort of common influence. You can see where there's this certain subset of people who maybe heard Jordan Peterson talk about the Bible. These guys who are probably these militant atheists 10 years ago heard Jordan Peterson talk about the Bible and thought, wow, maybe this thing that's been around forever is at least worth looking at. And sometimes it takes somebody like that to communicate that to people. I don't know what it was that got me interested in the Bible. I don't remember the specific moment. I mean, I think it was just a lot of my interest just going in that direction. But you can see where certain people play a very large role. Someone like Jordan Peterson talking about the Bible in a way that these kids hadn't heard before. I think that had a pretty heavy influence on what we see, you know, all of these new Christians who don't necessarily come from a Christian background. These aren't necessarily kids who were raised Christian. 
left their faith and returned. This is in many cases people who were not raised in families. They were otherwise raised in uh, secular families. They're people with secular interests. And uh, I, I see it in so many places. I'm just I'm trying to think of other influential figures in the last few years. I mean, because that's the thing is sometimes you know the zeitgeist is so thick that it's hard to actually pinpoint you know who is responsible or where it came from. You know, sometimes it is kind of like this fog that just permeates everything, and you're not entirely sure where things come from or where they go. And what's funny about the zeitgeist, too, is it plays into the endless pursuit for jewels. Because one of the reasons why people are always searching for jewels and and why they always want their jewel to be unique, they always want to find a jewel that, you know, shimmers a little more, that's a little more unique makes their collection a little more coveted by other jewel hunters. You know, one of the reasons for that, uh, well, uh, I think a better way to put it would be, like, you know, one of the reasons why people want things like that is it kind of makes them feel like they're on the cutting edge of something. Like, sometimes people search after something that they can be like, you know, this is mine and nobody else has it. Or I was the first. It's not necessarily that you have the only jewel. It's that you have the first of its kind. You were an early adopter. You were one of the first people to go digging for jewels in this one location. So you can claim that. You can put that on your resume. But what's uh, you know funny about that is, is how that plays into the zeitgeist is that's how people feel about what's going on. You know, when the zeitgeist sort of picks up steam, when the whatever the new zeitgeist is, when that starts to pick up steam, a lot of people feel like they're on the cutting edge of it. They might even think that they themselves are influencing it. That they're participating, contributing to it. And if you think that the jewel that somebody finds is valuable to a person, think about the jewel that he creates. Think about like it's one thing someone's you know dealing with somebody who's egotistical about finding treasure is one thing. But think about the ego on the person who believes they are making treasure. It's why we think of artists, athletes, People who are good at things. It's why, you know, we think of people who are good at things as being particularly egotistical. Because these aren't just people who found something that they're proud of. Found something that strokes their ego. Something they can display on a shelf. These are actually people who create jewels. So if you can be egotistical about finding jewels, you can certainly be egotistical about creating jewels. And if you're doing that in this abstract way where you you feel like you're part of the zeitgeist, or probably more, more likely, you probably feel like it's your own little private zeitgeist. 
you heard of my own private Idaho. Well, uh, this is uh, my own private zeitgeist. Because that's what a lot of people feel at the early stage. Uh, that's, that's what a lot of people feel during like the early stages of a developing zeitgeist. Is a lot of people feel like it's only going on in their little corner of the world with their friends. Meanwhile, they don't realize that there's all these different little nodes. Because people who probably come from similar backgrounds are interested in similar things. Not, not always, but often that are, are kind of coming across the same ideas. And so that kind of gets things spinning. And so you have different people thinking along similar lines in different places. And then you, you throw something like the internet into that and that changes everything entirely. You know, that speeds everything up, that burns everything out quicker, but it can also sustain things. I mean, things also take on much, uh, things get entangled in the culture much deeper too. Like, I think we have a tendency to look at what the internet has done to, you know, communication and, you know, the spread of certain ideas and, you know, just people's interests for that matter. You know, what's popular. You know, we have a tendency to focus on the ways that things come into the mix and just crash and burn very quickly. They could be insanely popular for a day and they crash and burn. And so we, we think of everything as very fleeting and temporary in digital culture, and a lot of it is. And by its very nature, it can be easily just deleted. It can, it can be easily removed or censored. So there's something undeniably transient about it. There's something undeniably fleeting and temporary about it. But things also become deeply, deeply entangled to the point where simply deleting and banning and censoring and whatever other measures can be used to remove content from the internet, there are some things that become so deeply entangled that that doesn't even work. And that's very interesting and not talked about quite often enough. I think people have a tendency to focus on the opposite, which does happen, but that happens everywhere. Most things do kind of crash and burn. Most things that do catch people's interest briefly do kind of crash and burn or fade away for that matter. Either way, they become less relevant. So I don't think the digital world is that different in that way. The difference is if the internet's been scrubbed of something, you're not gonna stumble upon it in a junk store. And that's something like the material world will always have you know, it's an advantage the material world will always have is the fact that you truly have to collect every single copy of something, every single physical copy of something and destroy it at once for it to be gone forever. And as long as there's one physical hard copy of something, it can be reproduced. It can be watched. And so that's an advantage that physical media has over the digital. But I think that we tend to focus too much on the ways that the digital 
medium is fleeting on the ways that the digital media can be censored and removed and even beyond that even even beyond like the idea of it being deliberately removed just the way that it loses popularity like even getting away from rules and regulations and enforcement and agendas just the simple fact that something can be insanely popular for a very short amount of time and then nothing maybe five years later ten years later somebody for some like failing you know some some like failing news website writes an article that's like remember star wars kid here's what he's doing now you know that's the most that a lot of things like that can look forward to because they crash and burn but then other things do become a permanent part of the culture. There are things that if you just look at the way that the internet has, has influenced the way that people interact face-to-face. Look at the way that it's been in- integrated and quite awkwardly so far. But you can see where they're going with it. You can see what they want. You know, the internet's been very awkwardly integrated in with our day-to-day life, but it's there. It's just there's still kind of a clunkiness to it. People still still have some reservation about it. And part of that is just person-to-person. I think in the same way that some people just naturally understand tact better than others, regardless of their age or, or what generation they're with, I do think there is some something generational to it too with just people's comfort with digital technology. Like I've had interactions with people a little bit younger than I am and and I just noticed little things they do that are just slightly different. Like I had a girlfriend and uh, her roommate had a boyfriend. This sounds like lyrics. I had a girlfriend and a roommate had a boyfriend. It's like pop punk lyrics. I'm a pop punk vocalist. It's like some like gay pop punk song. <laughs> no, but I, uh, and I meant that literally. It sounds like the setup to like some, uh, I don't know. But uh, anyway, uh, I, had, I had an interaction with that guy. A nice guy, I liked him. You know, he was, but he was, I would say at least like five, maybe seven years younger, maybe I'm, maybe he seemed younger than he was, but definitely quite a few years younger than I was. Younger than most of the other people I'd been around at that point. And he, he kind of liked some similar music and stuff. And if I wore a band shirt, and it's not, you know, I don't wear band shirts all the time, but I would occasionally wear a band shirt, a metal shirt over to my girlfriend's house. And if he was there, he might ask me about it. But I noticed that he would Google it just right there. Like if I walked in the house, he'd go, oh, what's that shirt? Like, mortuary drape. It's a it's mortuary, mortuary drape. Something like that. And he, he he's going to Google it right in front of me. And, and I was just a little, it, like regardless of like, it, it doesn't matter what he's looking up. You know, I, I could have been wearing a shirt that says sunfish IPA brewing company or some shit and even if he looked that up I would feel a little bit weird about it 
it's just sort of a weird interaction to me even though i defend technology and i defend like phone sh you know and even though like i i'm against phone shaming i've made it very clear on this show that i think i'm one of the more vocal proponents i may have been the one to invent the phrase phone shaming because that's what it is uh, but anyway, as much as I'm against phone shaming, I also, I, I was a little surprised that somebody would just Google what's on my shirt right in front of me, you know? I, it's just not something that I would typically expect. Like, as, you know, I don't, I don't know that it's necessarily, Im, you know, impolite. I don't know that I would call it flat-out rude. I would say it exists in that sort of wild west of people adjusting to technology. It exists in that sort of no man's land of, oh, how do we integrate this brand new technology in with existing social tact? And so, like, yeah, I would, I would say it falls more into this just new territory than like a rude territory. But that said, it made me self-conscious and I thought, I got to be careful what shirts I wear over here. You know, I got to be careful what shirts I wear because who knows what, you know, what shirt I might wear and he looks it up and gets some idea in his head about what it is. Uh, you know, it's just not something that I need. So I, it, it was interesting that I consciously stopped wearing most band shirts when I would go over there because I was just like, not because I didn't like the kid, because I was just like, I don't need this. I don't, I don't need somebody who is quite a few years younger and so was even more plugged into the internet, was even more plugged into phones. I just don't need him Googling everything that's on my body. And, and that's like one of those moments, and I've had a number of those moments. You know, I've, I've had a number of interactions with people, specifically younger. Although I think older people sometimes do this too. I think it's like, it's a weird thing where it's like you're either on the younger side or the older side. And sometimes there are older people who will just do that too, because to them, it, it like they didn't use the internet like throughout the entire '90s and most of the 2000s. They're the people who started using the internet for the first time in maybe like 2010, like beyond checking their email. They started using it regularly in like 2010, and so to them, it's like they never learned any of the sort of tact. They never really learned that there was a, a certain way to go about using these things and so like while the kid doesn't like someone who's younger than you doesn't necessarily understand that because they were just raised using this stuff but then the person who's a little too old it's so new to them that the idea of this weird device having any rules this device fitting into our rules of politeness anything like that that's just totally foreign to an old person too so you're left with this sort of middle group of people which is people who spent a certain chunk of their lives without it it's people who spent a certain chunk of their lives without the internet without smartphones but who still started using it fairly early and kind of had to figure out that wild west that I'm talking about of like, how do you bring this up? Because there was a point in time where you just didn't really talk about the internet with normal people. 
there was something kind of hush-hush about what you did on the internet. It didn't matter what it was. I'm not even talking about porn. There was this sort of idea that it's like you don't really share what you do with other people that you know. You don't tell them like who you talk to. You don't tell them what you do. And it did feel like there was this sort of like unwritten set of rules surrounding it. And I I heard a story at some point about somebody who... These like loud helicopters and like... I heard a story about a guy who was out walking at night and these two helicopters landed right next to him and threw him in the helicopters. they've passed enough but uh, just like the guy like googling what's on my shirt right in front of me I've had a few experiences like that like things that I just wouldn't do and I heard a story at some point about a guy who did something similar where he he uh, was working on a group project like a college project with a girl that I guess he didn't know, like it was it was a class project, and so they were all working on the same thing in the library. And at some point, his screen got turned around, and he had the girl's Facebook profile up, like while they were sitting there working on their group project with their computers out, he was looking at this girl in his group's Facebook profile, which is stupid and creepy. Like, even if nothing was meant by it, save it for later, buddy. You know, go look later. And I kind of have a rule about that where I, I, at some point, you know, like, at some point when I was interested in a girl, like, I wouldn't look at her social media profile. If I was friends with her, if she, if she found me on there, or we became friends on there, I usually wouldn't go through and, like, look at all the pictures or look at all the things she said. And one of the reasons for that is because I hate sitting somewhere with somebody and they're telling you a story that they, that you already saw, or they're like telling you about something that you already saw online and you have to pretend that you didn't already see it. And so like one reason is that I didn't want to do that. Like if you're hanging out with a girl and she's going to tell you about like when she took a trip to Mexico two years ago. You know, it's weird when when someone's telling you that and you're like, oh, yeah, you know, two nights ago, I I just like I stayed up really late and I was just cycling through your photos and I saw your Mexico, your your photos from Mexico. Looks like you had a blast. Looks like you had a blast in Mexico from the photos. (laughs) Uh, But it's one of those things where it's like that's one of the reasons why I didn't want to and I just started it just felt weird it just felt strange to kind of go through I'm gonna find things out about you hey now that we've expressed interest in each other I think and, and now that we're connected on this strange online world where we pretend to share access to the subconscious I'm going to learn all about you. You know, it just started to feel weird to do that, so I didn't do it. I mean, if you're infatuated with someone or something, I can see why you do it. But I stopped doing that for just all kinds of reasons. Most of it just intuition. 
Just I shouldn't be doing this. But that guy looking at the girl's profile, like while he's in a group meeting, was just funny to me. I mean, it's it's humiliating. I mean, that show Silicon Valley that I mentioned a little while back even had a scene like that where they're at some sort of convention and uh, he had... There's like some woman at the convention or a girl at the convention and he has her profile pulled up. It's the exact same story and I'm sure that's happened to a bunch of people. I'm sure that kind of thing has happened to a ton of people. Because I even feel weird like if you're hanging out with somebody and there's like, do you have Facebook? Do you have Instagram? Like there's nothing wrong with it because I, I see all this stuff as natural as I've explained. But I think like when I was introduced to technology and how kind of taboo it was, you know, how kind of hush-hush and taboo the new digital technology was when it came out. I think because of that, there's there's still a part of me that's a little uncomfortable when people are a little too glib about it. To use Tom Cruise's word, the word that Tom Cruise taught me, glib. When people are a little too glib and they and they say like, "Oh, you on Facebook? Yeah, you on Facebook? Yeah." I, I feel a little weird about it, but it's but I'm fine with it. Like I don't judge them for saying that. It's just it's one of those things that like our worlds aren't seamlessly integrated yet. You know these like these these simulations of the human subconscious haven't been perfectly seamlessly integrated yet, and that's what they want. You know, that's what people want. Some people, not everybody, but some people want that. Uh, and again, though, because I, I haven't even gone into it yet, but it's why I first started talking. But the idea of people coming from different places and getting to the same spot. People coming from different places who all end up participating in the zeitgeist, maybe in similar ways. And I mean, it could be something like, you know, on an episode a while back, I brought up Dennis the Menace, how Dennis the Menace was created in the U.S. and the U.K. right around the same time. And it involves a similar storyline, a kid who causes trouble named Dennis, who's a menace. And it it turns out they didn't know about each other. It was just some sort of synchronicity, coincidence. Maybe there was, you know, it was just part of the zeitgeist. I mean, maybe the idea of, like, a a kid who's a troublemaker made a lot of sense at that time. But, uh, you know, I I think you can see that as, you know, you're just, you're part of the zeitgeist. But those guys, the guys who created the two different Dennis the Menaces in the U.S. and the U.K., they could have accused each other of stealing the other guy's idea. Like, they could have been like, I created Dennis the Menace and it's, it's my little jewel. How dare this this limey steal my idea? And the American guy, or the, the British guy, the limey, you know, he could have said the same thing. He could have said, you know, how dare this American guy steal my idea? Or you could just say, hey, maybe we both tapped into the same thing. Because that does happen. You know, that does happen, and... I've experienced that myself because I'm somebody who like I don't like to feel like I'm on a track. I don't I don't like to feel like I'm falling in with some kind of current trend against my will. 
But I also feel that if something is good, it's simply good. And that's kind of how I feel about the trend of different people from different points of view all kind of rediscovering the value of spirituality and religion in the last number of years. And of course, there there are people who have been doing that for a long time. Hear that guy? But, uh... I've seen this guy's, I've seen this guy deteriorate over the last year. He's this guy who wears like a, a thick jacket with a hood on in all weather, 90 degree weather, but his, uh, his, his rambling monologues have, have changed. <laughs> They've deteriorated. Maybe mine have too. But anyway, anyway, what I was getting at though is just, uh, you know, those, those Dennis the Menace creators, the guys who created the two completely separate, independent Dennis the Menace comics, they could have been like, oh, you know, this was my idea, and, and, you know, this other person took it, how dare they? Or they could have just accepted that, hey, maybe, maybe two people have the same idea, because, you know, sometimes that does happen. But it's hard for people to accept, too, though, you know? That can be hard for somebody to accept that something they came up with, somebody else just easily came up with too, or they came up with something similar. That's hard for a creative person to accept, and I speak from experience. You know, and because I mean, the, the thing to remember about creative people too is we hallucinate. Creative people are constantly hallucinating. I mean, the reason why we're creative to begin with is that we naturally hallucinate. I mean, that's what, I mean, if you, you think about visual art or music, movies, most performance, most art is a hallucination. It's like, it's rendering a hallucination. And with, um, you know, the ego involved in art, artists don't just hallucinate the artwork itself, they hallucinate things in other people's artwork. An artist can hear a song by another creator and think, he stole that from me. When there's really very little in common, and it, again, it could just be part of the zeitgeist. You know, you can't always pinpoint one original. You can't always narrow it down to one. But, but you know, creative people sometimes hallucinate, and they see things and hear things that aren't there, and it, it makes them feel threatened. And I swear to God this is true. If you've known enough creative people, insecure creative people, of which I am some of the time, not all the time, some of the time for sure. But if you've known enough insecure creative people, which to be honest describes most of them that I've ever known, and I mean that as no insult since I'm including myself. Actually, no, I do mean it as an insult, but since I'm including myself, I'm off the hook. But no, if you know enough insecure artistic people, insecure creative people, you know that they see things that aren't there all the time, and that's what fuels their work. That's the, the very thing that fuels their work. But they also see things 
that aren't there in other people's work, in other places. And they feel threatened. They feel like the jewel they created has been tainted or robbed from them in some way. And that's everybody's fear. When someone finds a jewel, their fear is that something will taint that jewel or take it away. And sometimes it's worse when the jewel is just tainted and not taken away. Because you're like, God dang it, I've still got this jewel, but it sucks now. <laughs> like I, I still have the jewel, but it sucks. It doesn't even shine anymore. This jewel don't even shine. So sometimes having it tainted is worse. And what that feeling is, like when, some, when a jewel has been tainted, what that feeling is, it's like when you realize you don't like something that you used to like. And hey, that, you could go real deep with that. Could be a, a TV show, it could be a band, it could be a person. You know, when I was growing up, everyone loved the Wonder Years. And a friend was visiting me, a friend that I grew up with, and we got drunk and stoned years ago. And we watched an episode of The Wonder Years. And to be fair, it was toward the end. I think, no, it was the final episode. It wasn't just toward, I mean, yeah, I mean, I'm right. It was toward the end, but it was, it was really toward the end. It was the final episode. And so I think it might, that, that show might have gotten kind of bad at the end. I don't know. Because when I actually saw it as a kid, I think that I was so taken by that show. I was so invested in the Wonder Years that I don't think I was being critical. I think I was just like, I'm in this world. I'm a kid too. I'm a kid. This rules. You know, watching the Wonder Years with your mom, that kind of thing. But watching it years later, watching the last episode, drunk and stoned, I don't know why we thought that was a good idea or I thought it was a good idea, but we watched it and it really deeply bummed my friend out. He, he turned to me and he, and he was like, you know, I, I feel like I just learned that the Wonder Years wasn't good. <laughs> He's like, the way, I feel right now, the way I'm feeling right now is that, like, I just learned that the Wonder Years wasn't actually a good show all that time. And he was just very reflective and, <laughs> and quiet. And I was like, yeah, well, may, maybe it's just this episode. But while we were watching it, because, you know, because that show does those, it has, I think it's Daniel Stern who uh, he does voiceovers on the show. Like he narrates what the kid is thinking. He narrates what Kevin is thinking. And so like when Kevin gets embarrassed in front of a girl, you hear this man's voice go like, ah, oh no. She saw me, you know, it, it's weird. So it's like you have this man narrating what the kid is thinking. And he was still doing that, though, in this final episode where Kevin's a teenager. And so that was weird. You know, it's just that, like, the entire show has, has been narrated by this man, by Daniel Stern. And so I, I completely understand why my friend was bummed. Because I was, too, to be honest. But it's that sort of thing, like, where you, you grow up and, like, your entire childhood, you're just like, oh, yeah, the Wonder Years, you know, one of the best things I saw as a kid. One of the best, some of the best television I saw growing up. 
And then you see it as an adult and you're you're like, oh man, I wish I wouldn't have found out that it actually sucks. And I don't know that that's true. This might have just been a bad egg, as they say. The, The last episode might just be a bad egg. But you have that experience all the time. I mean, I have that experience with things that are new to me. Like, I'll get really excited about something that's still relatively new to me. And something, maybe I just overplay it. Maybe maybe it's one thing or another. But I end up just bumming myself out on it. And that's no fun. You know, you're like, oh, you know, I found this, this shiny new jewel. But I, I guess I... I played with it a little too much, you know, I, I, uh, I played around with this, this shiny new jewel a little too much and it's lost a little of its shimmer. You know, that can happen. And that's, that's always the sort of dilemma, I mean, it's like the, when you really love a new catchy song, and it, it seems like there's some sort of ratio involved too, where like the catchier a song is, the more you'll hate it if you overplay it. But the temptation to overplay it is so strong. You know, you're so taken by this. It's just, oh, it's so memorable. The harmony hits at just the right time. You know, it's it's so perfectly catchy. But you just know that you're going to get sick of it. You just know. But yet you also can't seem to stop listening to it. But that's a jewel that yeah burns itself out very quickly. And that idea of burning things out, you know, earlier I used that when I was talking about the way that a lot of people view things that come and go in the new digital culture, which is becoming more and more integrated with pop culture. You know, while it it hasn't really been fully integrated in with, um, as I trip, um, well, it hasn't been fully integrated in with, you know, our our day-to-day reality yet. You can see where it's pretty much fully integrated with the culture since the way we interact with the culture, the way we view the culture is almost exclusively through the internet now. So that shows you that, you know, they've achieved a pretty high level of integration between the digital world and pop culture. But yeah, there's still this sort of clunkiness to it that we're dealing with. And I think as these younger generations, as these people who are more than comfortable just like st- standing there next to you, Googling what your clothes say, you know, as more and more people are like that, and maybe even a little more free. I mean, I, I have had experiences where I, I'm sitting there with somebody and they're actually going through my my social meteor profile while I'm just next to them and that's a different level and there's nothing written or taught that tells you that's not okay that's what's interesting about it cuz it's kind of to me it feels like opening a drawer in someone's house without their permission even though that's really not what it is at all it just kind of has that feel about it you know, kind of has that feel, the idea of being like, oh yeah, you know, opening a drawer in someone's house because you're just hanging out and just like seeing what's in their drawer. You know, not even necessarily intending on stealing something or anything like that. 
um, but just like there's an unwritten rule for sure that says not to do that no matter how close you are to somebody you know there's an unwritten rule that says you don't just like open a closet door or open a drawer and look in look in you know it's one thing if you're looking for silverware because you're all eating or something it's you know a little bit rude though you know because you're taught or you should be taught to say to ask like the the host like oh you know can i uh, grab some silverware you know something like that but like the idea of somebody sitting there and like scanning through somebody's social media or profile like right next to them at a bar i don't know to me there's something just inherently uncomfortable about that and it shouldn't need to be explained but i think younger and younger generations won't understand that explanation even if you gave it to them i think the idea of any separation at all between you in the flesh and what that other person sees on their screen i think any distinction or separation is going to be it's probably going to be there but you know the separation is going to be a lot thinner it's going to be a lot more translucent and maybe eventually it won't be there at all. I can't say. And of course the things that people will be interacting with like on a screen. Like the, the version of you that people will be interacting with on a screen will be even more quote-unquote like you than what's on there now. Even though right now there might be videos, ideas, thoughts, photos... You know, the next step is to have something that's even more like the real you. And that in turn will make it even harder for young people growing up in this world to make a distinction between that and uh, you know, who you are as a person in the flesh, which will then, of course, you know, help pave the way for more of this AI that I've covered previously this transhumanism where you are basically given this immortal digital soul so all those things kind of run together and i don't know i mean to me it's like it comes down to whether or not you want to really fight it or not whether you think it's worth the energy because it's something that you're probably not going to stop like I, I just from my point of view I just I don't think that any even a group of people I don't think is going to be able to stop the momentum and the curiosity now that the door has been open now that you have very influential rich people who are funding this and even participating directly I just don't think we're going to do much to stop it. And if that's the case, like if, if it's something that you don't feel like you can stop, then you have to ask yourself, then is it the thing that I want to be known for resisting? Is it the hill that I want to be known for dying on? You know, you'd have to ask yourself that. And I would say like all of that digital stuff, AI is not resisting that stuff. I decided a long time ago was not the thing that I was going to make my big statement about. And that's the thing about the zeitgeist is, you know, with the zeitgeist, 
sometimes you just have to accept that you're going with the flow of it. You're like, oh, me and my friends came up with some idea. We were aware of, of like some larger force or momentum going a certain direction. And we started thinking this or saying this or making this. Oh, no. And then a bunch of other people did, too. And while part of that is like it's good to, to be able to accept that, it's good to be able to accept the direction things are moving and just to like go with the flow, as they say, to move with the momentum, as we say. <laughs> you know, while it's good to be able to do that, sometimes it's good to just be able to relax and say, like, I don't have to fight every single thing. But I think there's also a time and a place to resist the zeitgeist and be like, you know what, I, I'm actually going to fight upstream. If you want to think about something like the zeitgeist as a river, you know, I I do feel there's sometimes you're, the place where you want to go requires you to just relax and float down the river and head in the same direction that the water's flowing. But there are times where you find yourself, oh no, I'm in the river the old zeitgeist river and then you say you know what no, i don't like where this is heading and even if i don't get anywhere i do want to make it a point you know i do want to stand by some kind of principle and say that yeah i didn't go in the direction it was heading i did fight this or better yet i just got out of the river and so far that's been my approach i don't know that it's always the best thing for me Maybe I would carve out more of a niche for myself doing something else or making another decision. But I do feel like when I find myself kind of caught in the zeitgeist, caught in the river, there are times where I just go with it. There are times where I'm like, you know, I think this is kind of the greater good and I'm just going to head in this direction. But when it comes to fighting it, you know, every time that I feel like I'm fighting that, when I'm like kind of trying to fight upstream against any kind of zeitgeist, any kind of, you know, social or just larger momentum. I always end up feel like, feeling like I'm wasting energy. And I think it's a better option just to get out. I, if I don't like the way the river's going, I think that I'm the type of person who would rather just get out. I think I still have energy to fight. It's not that I don't feel like there won't be a time and a place where if I absolutely had to, I could fight upstream. I do believe I have some fight left in me, but I also feel the need to save it. And I think when I don't like the direction things are going, I am the sort of person who would rather just get out of the river and find another way. Knowing full well that I'll end up back in the river somewhere else, but I think I would rather get out even if I'm just walking alongside the darn river. <laughs> Enough about this river thing. But sometimes you have to choose. You know, and so far I... You know, I haven't found the right zeitgeist for myself. Even when I've found myself kind of going along similar lines, I haven't found the movement, I haven't found the exact set of ideas that speaks to me and really makes me want to get involved. But it would be nice, you know. At some point, it would be really nice for me and people like me to feel like we could just relax our body and float downriver. 
just kind of follow the zeitgeist where it goes. At some point that might be nice, but we'll see. Hey there, you're listening to the first hybrid episode. I thought about doing this before. I've thought about doing this, but I believe this is the first time that I've made a hybrid episode, which half mobile, half studio, it's what I'd call a tandem. This is a tandem episode. Uh, When I was a kid, there were these ice cream sandwiches you could buy, and they were called tandems because it was an ice cream sandwich, and half of it was dipped in a chocolate shell. A hard chocolate shell. Turns out a, a, lot of, a lot of me is dipped in a hard chocolate shell. But no, half, of this, half the ice cream sandwich was dipped in a hard chocolate shell, and the other half wasn't. So it was half and half. It was a tandem. And that's what this episode is. It's a tandem. Half of this episode was just plain old ice cream sandwich. Half of it was dipped in a chocolate shell. And you're now listening to the chocolate shell half. What you're experiencing right now is the half of the ice cream sandwich that was dipped in a chocolate shell. And uh, I had more I wanted to say, though. I had more I wanted to say that I didn't say last night because the conversation with myself spiraled, as usual, into technology, nature. And when I talk about nature, I'm basically talking about the Dharma. I don't use a lot of Buddhist terminology because I confuse a lot of it. Even though a lot of my own discipline, my own practice lines up with Buddhism, is heavily influenced by Buddhism, might even be called Buddhist. I don't throw the terms around too much, and that's not because they're too sacred for me to throw around. It's because I get them all confused half the time. Half the time, I don't know if I'm talking about Satori or Dharma. God forbid we get into the actual sect of Buddhism. Maha... I can't even pronounce them. See, if you can't even pronounce it, you might not even want to say it. But no, I have more I wanted to say about my own private zeitgeist. And when you talk about something like the zeitgeist, it's effective to get specific. While by its very nature, the zeitgeist is something larger. It is the bigger picture. It is the whole of something. Not necessarily every single thing. The zeitgeist isn't God. The zeitgeist isn't the whole of everything. But when it comes to people, 
the world of people. I mean, maybe zeitgeist play out beyond humanity. I haven't gone there with it yet. I'm pretty confident, now that I'm thinking about it, I'm pretty confident that the natural world has zeitgeist all throughout it. Many of which we wouldn't be able to recognize or comprehend because we're so consumed with our own human zeitgeist. The zeitgeists that are occurring inside of our own society, our own civilization, our own group of friends, for that matter. But I want to give an example of a time where I found that I was part of a zeitgeist. And I mentioned in that mobile episode, I mentioned in that part of the ice cream sandwich, because make mo, make, make mo mistake, make mo mistakes. It's like advice, self-help people give you. Make mo mistakes, man. You know, your problem is you ain't making enough mistakes. Make mo mistakes, man. No, make no mistake. This whole thing is an ice cream sandwich, but in the first half... In the first half of this ice cream sandwich that was not coated in chocolate, I mentioned how there are zeitgeists within zeitgeists, and at that point you might as well not use the word zeitgeist because you just sound like a jerk. Hey, you know there's zeitgeists within zeitgeists. There's whirlpools within whirlpools. There's worlds within worlds, man. It's true, though. There are zeitgeists within zeitgeists. And those themselves are usually a symptom of the larger zeitgeist. And just an experience that came to mind tonight, I was thinking about it. Some years back, I would put this around the early to mid-2010 decade. So let's say around 2013, 2015, 2014, around that period, where... I was very creatively uninspired and maybe I wasn't uninspired so much as I wasn't making the effort to draw. I wasn't actually taking the time to sit there and draw. I was caught up with work. I was caught up with just other things going on in my life, just various girl problems, distractions. And I just wasn't committing the time. I don't think inspiration was really a big factor, and I think inspiration is something that could be dissected, and I don't know that it even needs to be, because I do believe in inspiration. But I'm not someone who, especially with visual creativity, relies too much on inspiration. If I simply take the time to do it and I'm not completely burnt out, I can usually do something. An exercise, if nothing else brush up on technique, whatever that is. But I was very creatively uninspired, and I wasn't drawing very often. And that was around the time, too, that I got really into drinking. You know, around the early 2000s, I started to get really into just the idea of going out to bars in my spare time. But I figured, why not bring my tablet? You know, I can draw. I can go to the bar by myself and draw. And even though it sucks to be that guy who's making a spectacle of himself by drawing in public. Oh, hey, uh, did you happen to notice me over here? I'm an artist. Hey, girls. Hey, girls. You notice I'm over here drawing? You want to come say hi? You want to come say hi to the artist? 
Now, even though it sucks to to, I'm, I'm very self conscious of that sort of thing because you do open yourself up to people being like, "Can I see what you're doing? Can I see? Can I see what you're doing?" You know, you open yourself up to that. But I did find that oh, I like to drink and I like to draw, and I'm not drawing enough, and I am drinking enough. So why don't I try drawing while I drink, and not just drawing while I drink? What? just not caring at all about what I do, just doing whatever entertains me at that time, which isn't typically how I've drawn as an adult. Like when I was a kid, of course, that's what I did. When I was a little kid, of course, a lot of what I drew was pleasurable. It was entertaining. But as an adult, I fell out of that. And so drinking and having a a pen and not giving a fuck, of course, I ended up just drawing silly things sometimes. I also drew things that I cared about. In many ways, it reinvigorated my love for drawing because I was like, oh, hey, my inhibitions are lowered, so I'm not worried about the outcome. And sometimes when that happens, you end up doing better. So I I do feel like I reignited something by doing that. But when I wasn't doing something that I actually cared about, I would just be like, I'll just draw a cartoon, something I've never done. I've never been a cartoon guy, but I would draw cartoons. And so sometimes I would draw Disney characters, particularly the Ducks, I'm a lifelong resident of Duckburg. And someone would say, Duckburg doesn't exist. Hey, dude, Duckburg don't exist. And I would say, no, it it, it does. It was created by somebody. It exists in our heads. We all grew up watching Donald Duck, uh, Huey, Louie, and Dewey, Scrooge, DuckTales, That's a world that we're all aware of, and I happen to inhabit it as much as those ducks do. So when I was feeling drunk and silly, sometimes I would draw, you know, and and I admit, I'm not really into cartoons, let alone anthropomorphic cartoons, sexually. I'm not typically, like Jessica, we all have those early experiences of seeing Jessica Rabbit and turning into the Tex Avery wolf with our tongue rolling on the floor. I think a lot of us saw Jessica Rabbit and other sexy cartoons, cartoons that were deliberately sexy. There's nothing wrong with that. doesn't make you a freak because you think Jessica Rabbit is hot. She is. But the difference is Daisy Duck is beautiful. Jessica Rabbit is hot. Daisy Duck is beautiful. And there's that scene in Mickey's Christmas Carol where they're showing Scrooge like everything he missed out on in life. Because he only cared about money, there, you know, the ghost of Christmas past is like, hey, remember that party where Daisy, and I think she has a different name in A Christmas Carol, but she's played by Daisy. Daisy Duck is the actress who plays this love interest of Scrooge, this early love interest of Scrooge. And he, I think he turns her down for a dance, or, or maybe he does dance with her, but the idea is basically that he was in love with her and she was in love with him, but he loved money more, and they never got married. And there's a line in that that's brutal. There's a line in, in Mickey's Christmas Carol that's brutal, where the ghost of Christmas past says to Scrooge something to the effect of, you shunned this beautiful creature. He refers to Daisy Duck as a creature, which she is, but she's also a a beautiful woman. And that scene, she's particularly beautiful in that scene because she bats her eyelashes. And there's something about the way those ducks' eyes are drawn that's really satisfying. 
cartoonized in general, even anime, even something that you know I'm not particularly into, even I can appreciate a really well-drawn anime eye. I had a girlfriend who was moving out, her, her mom was moving out of her childhood home, so she was having to get rid of some stuff from storage, and I was with her at the house, and she was going through, and, and she was just an incredibly talented artist, one of the most talented artists I've ever known, and she she was showing me just like her old sketchbooks, some old stacks of papers, and there was an entire page of anime eyes, because her and her sister, she was my age, but... Her dad had been a Japanese teacher, and uh, so she got into anime pretty early. She, was, she wasn't Japanese, but she had gotten into anime pretty early. Earlier, it was before the big anime boom. Because nowadays, like, every single American kid grew up watching some form of anime or anime-inspired American cartoons. It's just, it's everywhere. Video games. Anime is as American as apple pie now. But this girlfriend had been introduced to it early. So as a girl, as a a girl and a teenager, she was just drawing anime eyes over and over again so that she would get really good at it. And that's impressive to me because I have never done that. Despite being, you know, despite drawing, despite being an artist, whatever you want to call it, I've really never been somebody who sits there and practices I don't sit there and draw the same thing over and over again to get really good at it. And that's to my detriment in many ways. It would serve me better if I did that sometimes. I mean, you look at people like R. Crumb. And in the, I think it's in one of the documentaries that he's in. It might not be in the documentary Crumb itself, but it's in a documentary that he's featured in. where There's, there's a scene that shows him practicing. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's why he's so good. And that's why he improved so much. Because if you look at early Crumb, which is incredible, you know, he was always incredible. But you notice that he became a much better illustrator. You know, he he published those portraits later on in his career where he would just draw. He would, he would take a photograph of an old timey photograph of somebody, jazz musicians. I know he was into that blues musicians, whatever he's into. And he, he would draw a pen and ink rendition in his style of those photos, and they're incredible. They're absolutely incredible. And you can tell that he got that good first through his natural skill, but then through practice. And this girlfriend, she drew anime eyes as a girl over and over again, and I was just amazed by these anime eyes. I was so impressed by them. Like, the way that she got the glint in the eye. It was so creative and like these heavy eyelashes. I was just, it was amazed. <laughs> it was amazing how impressed I was. But yeah, like I was saying, like I, I am impressed by a very well-drawn cartoon eye or a pair of eyes. And I feel that way about the Ducktown, the Duckburg eyes. And when it shows Daisy Duck with heavy eyelashes in Mickey's A Christmas Carol, I I've just always, like, I even saw that a couple years ago. You know, I grew up watching Mickey's A Christmas Carol, but a couple Christmases ago I watched that with my sister and brother-in-law, and I didn't say it to them. I didn't say it out loud, but when she flashed her eyelashes, when she flashed her eyes at Scrooge at the dance, I thought, she is beautiful. 
Daisy Duck is beautiful. So I've always had a little bit of a thing for Daisy Duck, and so sometimes I would draw her. I drew some versions of Daisy Duck. One of them was her with long hair and a big rack. I drew her with a big set. What some people call a pair of double DDs. And the idea wasn't I, the idea wasn't perverse. It wasn't like I was drawing Daisy Duck with cleavage for my spank bank. But I did kind of get a thrill out of it. I, I did kind of enjoy it. But I did some other drawings of her. I did a few. I did one that was a very abstract, like just random shapes and uh, just texture bleeding into other texture. And then her face was in the middle. And I have no recollection of doing that, but it just felt right at the time. Just putting Daisy Duck's face with no head, just her facial features in the middle of this more abstract drawing. And another one where another one that was really drunk and sloppy, where she has these really long arms that are like stretching. And it's almost like she's Stretch Armstrong or something. It was a weird one. And then I would also draw Donald Duck. Like I did a version of Donald Duck where he's wearing my clothes. I did a version of Mickey Mouse where he's wearing my clothes. And some of those got kind of psychedelic. Some of them, you know, there was just something fun to do. But I did do some sort of sloppy, psychedelic Disney-inspired drawings around 2014, maybe 2015. And it wasn't like I was going to rest my hat on that. You know, it wasn't like, oh, this is going to be my thing. I'm going to be the guy who does weird Disney art. Oh, I found my thing. Hey, hey, mom and dad. Hey, mom and dad. I found my thing. I found my thing, dad. Mom, mom, mom. The world, the world loves me because I do weird, sloppy, psychedelic Disney art. No, it's not like I was going to rest my hat on that, but I did enjoy doing it. And then I started to notice other people doing it. I started to notice, like, I don't even think I was on Instagram. I didn't have an Instagram account, I don't think, even at the time. But about a year or so later, I got one. I started to just notice a trend. I started to notice a number of people around my age, probably from relatively similar backgrounds, doing sort of warped Disney characters, warped cartoon characters. You'd see it with The Simpsons. I think I first noticed it with The Simpsons, you know, that that Disney brand, The Simpsons. Probably soon. Probably soon we will be hearing about how Disney bought The Simpsons. But Now, you'd see all kinds of cartoons. You'd see all kinds of pop culture characters done in a slightly warped style, sometimes very warped. Garfield was another popular one. You would see Garfield, King of the Hill, The Simpsons, Disney. You'd see Donald Duck. You'd see Mickey Mouse, just all of these famous cartoon characters. You started to see young, somewhat alternative people doing their own warped versions of that. And I became self-conscious. I was like, oh, that's kind of what I'm doing when I'm drunk and screwing around. And the way my mind works, the way my own insecurities work, is when I saw that other people were doing that and getting attention for it. I saw that there were people who, that they were resting their hats on that. Like, there were people out there, and I was like, oh, they are resting their hat on psychedelic Garfield. They are resting their hat. i got to find a new phrase. They are resting their ball sack. They are resting their ball sack on that ledge. 
they are they have decided that you know Picasso looking drawings of Donald Duck are their thing and they're popular for it relatively popular we're talking about a small niche here it's not like you're going over to your grandparents house and they're like yeah we just got into this new style of art it's called like psychedelic cartoon it's called psychedelic damaged cartoon character art it's this new thing we're into no it's not like you would see that but still there was enough for something as niche as that there was enough attention being placed on it that it was a it was what people call a thing it was a thing I didn't know that was a thing. And it made me want to stop doing it because that's how my own insecurity works is that I see that there are other people doing something that I'm actually not deeply invested in, yet I am. Like you heard what I just said about Daisy Duck. I'm clearly invested in Duckburg. I live there. I live in Duckburg. So I'm invested enough to, to feel something. But it just made me think, oh, you know, it, it made me th- like it made me think like, oh, I hope somebody doesn't see what I did and think that I saw what somebody else did and decided just to hop on that bandwagon. Not that it's even a big bandwagon, which sometimes makes it worse. Sometimes it makes things worse when the bandwagon is small. When the zeitgeist is small. But it was a moment for me where I was like, oh, shit, shit. I didn't realize that there was a zeitgeist, that part of the current zeitgeist was drawing screwed up Daisy Duck, Donald Duck, Mickey Mouse drawings. I didn't realize that I was participating in the zeitgeist. And that would be a good example of a microcosm. screwed up, chopped and screwed Disney art is a microcosm. And uh, you can easily, you know, you can see where like, you can easily trick yourself into thinking a microcosm is a macrocosm. And that's because it actually is. Like I was saying in the first half, half of this tandem hybrid episode, there is a as above so below relationship with these things where just because you're noticing a microcosm doesn't mean it isn't a reflection of the macrocosm it doesn't mean that the microcosm has no relationship to the macrocosm but it's probably not something to get too hung up about and that's a good rule in general if you say that about everything you're probably living a pretty good life. If you can truly say, oh, it's probably not something to get too hung up about. If you can say that about everything, it seems like you're doing pretty well. But I can tell you that getting hung up about the fact that you're not the only one doing weird Donald Duck art, definitely not something to get hung up on. But it did make me think. It did make me think, like, what's going on? Why are people doing this? Why am I doing this? Because when I catch myself participating in something 
when I catch myself being part of something in some small way that I didn't realize I was a part of, that I wasn't intentionally trying to be a part of, that I actually thought I was maybe a little bit unique in doing. When I notice that other people are doing it and it seems to feel connected in some way, it seems to feel like it's part of something that's in the air. It makes me say, hmm, what is in the air? Because this is just a symptom. Chopped and screwed Disney art. And that's me trying to sound like I'm in touch. That's me being an old man trying to sound like I'm in touch. Chopped and screwed. Like you go to your parents' house and you order a pizza but the pizza got flipped upside down in the delivery driver's car, so it's a mess when you open it. There's cheese everywhere. There's pepperoni where pepperoni don't even belong, you know. And your dad looks at it and says, looks like this thing got chopped and screwed. And you realize to yourself that, oh, I can't say that anymore. I can't even listen to chopped and screwed music, which I never have. I've never heard chopped and screwed music. So I really am your dad just saying that to sound hip and cool. But chopped and screwed Disney art. When I realized that people were doing that at the same time I was and that I didn't know they were doing it, it made me think, huh, I wonder what's leading people here. Why are a bunch of different people doing this at the same time, possibly without being influenced by each other. And of course, many of them were influenced by each other. There are people who saw somebody else doing it and just thought, hey, that looks like a good idea. Oh, this is what people I like are doing. This will make me cool. Oh, I can sell this. I can sell art that has a bunch of Garfields disembodied. I can do that. I can be like them. There are people who think that way. But when you yourself find out that you're part of that zeitgeist, it's a good lesson because you realize that, oh, hey, you weren't just following the bandwagon. You weren't just trying to do what other people were doing to be cool or to be noticed. So that means not everybody else is doing that. And sometimes when you yourself aren't part of something, you have a tendency to think that everybody who is, is part of it because it's just monkey see, monkey do. They want to be like other people. And that does describe a certain number of people, but it doesn't necessarily explain how it came to be in the first place and how different people kind of fell upon the same idea at the same time. There is a zeitgeist. I mean, you look at the development of heavy metal and you think about the short window of time where heavy metal went from sounding like hard rock to sounding like technical death metal or just, uh, you know, any variation of black metal, anything like that, you think about what a short window of time that was. When you discover that stuff after the fact... Like when you're like me and you you discover these things as a teenager and they've already kind of solidified into what they are, you don't fully appreciate the fact that all of that happened in such a short amount of time. Like I was talking to my friend the other day about the mid-2000s, let's say 2005 when he and I became friends, he moved here and it was 2005 and it was just our entire lives revolved around music. And we would look back at things from the mid-90s. We would look back at things from seven years earlier. 
In 2005, I remember the two of us going back and finding obscure gems and jewels from 1997 and being just like, oh, this is amazing, this old thing. It's amazing this old thing is so good and it's gone unnoticed. And it was from 1997. Meanwhile, it's 2004, 2005 that we are finding this thing. It's seven, eight years earlier. It's not even a decade earlier. Yet to us at that time, it felt like it was ancient. And that kind of plays into what I'm talking about here. When you think about like the development from hard rock to heavy metal to speed metal to death metal. And then everything that just fractured from there. You think about that and it's just like that was such a short amount of time. It's incredible to look back on that. But you also have to look at the zeitgeist of that time. You, you look at all of these people were responding to the zeitgeist. They were participating in the zeitgeist. Why did the idea of making overtly satanic heavy metal that was faster and faster, more and more inhuman sounding, why did so many people settle on that idea? Well, that's not the best example because that really was a scene. That really was some form of community and and subculture where everybody was paying attention to the same things. So, of course, you know, people were, in that case, people were responding to the same prompt in a lot of ways. But why did they feel the need to respond? And underground metal from the 80s is a good example, and it's something I don't talk about a lot on here. I don't feel that it's appropriate for this show even though it's something I know quite a bit about. For whatever reason, I, I try to keep certain interests away from this show. Uh, but what's so interesting about the development of underground metal in the 80s is a lot of it didn't have a chance to be successful. Uh, a lot of it didn't have a chance to be monetarily successful. A lot of it didn't have the chance to be successful in the same way that a popular rock band would be successful. You wouldn't necessarily be able to make a living off of it. So a lot of it was for the sheer sake of expression. And some of it was to get noticed. Because a lot of emphasis does get placed on money and fame. And just because somebody isn't motivated by money and fame... And just because money and fame isn't even possible, you can't even achieve those things... You know, depend, you know, depending on what it is you do. Like in 1986 or 87, you know, starting a, a garage metal band that just sounded like a blur of instruments with guttural vocals was not something that somebody was doing because they thought they were going to get fame or because they were going to get money doing it. It turns out some people did get a little bit. Turns out everything has a market, even if it creates its own market. But just because somebody wasn't motivated by fame or money or didn't even have, it wasn't even in the realm of possibilities to achieve fame or wealth, that doesn't make it more pure necessarily. Because some people are just doing monkey see, monkey do. They want to feel like they belong to something. They want to have an identity. But when you are looking at the genesis of an idea or the early development of an idea, like underground heavy metal... I do think you're going to come across a higher level of purity. 
things have not gotten saturated. They haven't gotten oversaturated. So you're overall going to be dealing with a higher level of purity. And even though those people in many ways were influencing each other and in contact with each other and responding to what each other was doing and responding to what bigger bands might have been doing, there was still something in the air beyond just monkey see, monkey do that made people think, yeah, I want to play really fast. I don't want to sound like a human being. And I want, you know, and I, and I want to scare people with Satanism. I want to tap into the occult. And I want that fully represented in this music. I don't want it just hinted at like the rock and roll bands did. I want to just fully immerse myself in that aesthetic, in that set of ideas, even if I don't understand them. Even if I'm a 15-year-old in Brazil, I still want to express myself in some way. That, to me, is the zeitgeist, tapping into the zeitgeist. And going back to this cartoon thing, I just became aware of the fact that Part of the zeitgeist in 2014, 2015 was for weirdo artists to do fucked up cartoons, like familiar cartoons, famous cartoons, but to make them doing slightly fucked up things, to make them a little more abstract. And why is that? I don't know why. But I think you can look at that as a symptom of something larger. What was it in our culture that was making people want to cannibalize cartoon characters and turn them into a distorted version of themselves? They're already distorted versions of themselves. And why didn't people do that with South Park? Maybe they did. They probably did. They probably eventually exhausted everything. But it's funny that there was a set of parameters to it, too. I noticed that people gravitated towards certain cartoon characters. The famous Disney characters, the Simpsons. Uh, There was one one other one that I was thinking of. Uh, Garfield. I don't want to forget that one, because people really gravitated toward demented Garfield art for a while. But what was it about, what was going on in the greater zeitgeist, in the larger mood at the time that made people think that that was a good way to express yourself or the right way to express yourself, to think that that's even entertaining? Because these characters, are, they're already demented. They're already distortions. That's what a cartoon character is. Yet we look at the Simpsons and think they're human. You don't look at the Simpsons and think, like, yeah, you're aware of the fact that they have yellow skin. You're aware of the fact that they're stylized a certain way. You're aware of the fact that real people don't look like that. But the Simpsons became so deeply ingrained so quickly in pop culture, and we are so used to them, that we actually think of the Simpsons as a fairly accurate representation of human beings. Maybe I'm alone in that. You know, I am the guy who thinks Daisy Duck's eyelashes are just, I mean, who cares? Let's throw the Mona Lisa in the trash. 
Let's throw the Mona Lisa in the trash, replace it with a still from Mickey's Christmas Carol of the scene, the exact moment where Daisy flashes her eyelashes. If you think, uh, if you think Mona Lisa's smirk can pull a ship to sea, you should see how many ships can get pulled to sea by Daisy Duck's eyelashes. But, uh, you know, something was in the air, and I mean, just to finish that other thought about The Simpsons, it's funny how we look at The Simpsons and we're like, yeah, they're humans. We know that they look like The Simpsons, we know they look like Matt Groening characters, we know those aren't real people, and we know that's not what real people look like, but they've become so ingrained in us that we kind of look at them as humans. And so the next step from there... Once And I mean, I think, too, it's, it's just the reason why I think people started, including me, started cannibalizing famous cartoon characters. And I never did it with The Simpsons. I never touched The Simpsons. I was never a big Simpsons fan, to be honest. But I think that there was something that was making us want to cannibalize culture even further. And I think you saw that sort of cannibalization playing out culture-wide. Because that comes on the heels of what a lot of people point out now as the beginning of this stagnation that has happened. I would say 2013, 2015 was when it became apparent, but not necessarily something you talk about, not necessarily something that was a common talking point, but it became apparent that, oh, culture was stagnating. And it's, you know, it varies. And you get into this sort of cliche old guy talk. Because a guy who was born in 1940, he's probably going to tell you that culture has been stagnating since 1960. A guy who's born in 1970 is going to tell you that culture has been stagnating since 1990. A guy who's born in 1985, like me, will tell you culture's been stagnating since 2005. There's a guy that I kind of peripherally pay attention to online, and I saw him make a comment. I'd say he's a few years younger than I am. Not a lot. I'd, I think he's in his early 30s. But he's he's young enough, like I, th- I think he's he's younger enough from me that his point of references are slightly different. And I saw something he said a while back where he was like, yeah, culture, basically his point of reference for stagnation was 2010. He's like, oh, nothing has happened since 2010. Culture has been stagnating since 2010. Actually, you know what? I think he said 2015. I believe he said 2015. And I saw that and I remember thinking like, oh, where were you in 2005? But somebody who's 10 years older than me can say to me, well, where were you in 1995? Where were you in... 1885 where were you in this, in 20 BC so on one hand i think there is always something in us as we grow older that feel that, that kind of sees new pop culture as inferior and part of some just like stagnating process it's like water that's been sitting in one place you know nobody's stirred the water nobody's uh, you know, it's it's a puddle. We just see it as a puddle, and things are growing in that puddle. 
And when you say, oh, pop culture died in 2005, somebody will say, yeah, but look, there's something growing in that puddle. And you say, yeah, but that's bacteria. I I can see that something is growing in that puddle. But the pop culture that I was raised in wasn't a puddle. It was a flowing stream. It was a creek. But then the person who's older than you says, pop culture was a creek when you were a kid. It was a it was a huge freaking river. It was the Mississippi River when I was a kid. And and I think both are true. I think that culture has I think pop culture at least in the west, at least in America has grown more and more stagnant. But I also believe that as we as individuals get older, we're also less accepting of new pop culture. I think we see where I think we are able to see where it's stagnant because none of it's new to us. We see where things are getting reinvented, reinvented. We see where things get repackaged. We see where things are manufactured. We become more aware of how it all works. And so I think on one hand, we all individually start to see pop culture as stagnant no matter what, because that's part of the process of growing older and no longer being distracted and motivated by our interest in pop culture. It's why parents typically don't care as much about that stuff as their children do. Although now I don't know. And there are always parents who want to stay hip. There's always the dad who's like, oh, uh, This pizza looks chopped and screwed, son. Kind of like the music you listen to. Like, there's always a parent who wants to be more hip. There's a lot of them who just naturally give up caring, and they like what they like. And a lot of what they like are the things that they grew up liking. So I think both are true. I think culture has grown more and more stagnant on the whole, objectively stagnant. But I also think that we start to see things as more stagnant. I think we start to become more critical, more dismissive of those same things. So it's really, it's hard to measure it all out. It's hard to actually measure out what's going on. But yeah, why people were cannibalizing cartoon characters, why that became attractive. It was something that you surprisingly weren't seeing a lot of in the 2000s. And it's not like it was a new idea. Like you can see where cartoon characters have always been parodied. People have always been messing around with pop culture icons like cartoon characters. It's easy to do and it's fun. It's fun to mess around with them. But I don't think that was going on as much in the 2000s. Something about the final years of the Obama presidency Not that it was influenced by that, but just to try to capture the time period when this happened. And there were a lot of other things going on at that time. And I I would dare say that I was very in tune with the larger zeitgeist at that time. I saw where things were going at that time, and I don't always see it. I'm always quick to point out the times where my prophecies turned out to be true or I was aware of something that was going on. And, you know, I always point out when I'm right. But I'm wrong a lot of the time, too. 
But in this case, that period, the, the last few years of the Obama presidency, I felt very tapped into the zeitgeist. I don't, I don't know that I was participating in it, but I would find things like the cartoons where I'd be like, oh, I'm doing this thing that other people are doing. Oh, I'm aware of this other thing. I mean, I think you can look at fitness, where fitness is something that everybody has known about forever. I mean, it used to be just a part of our life. You know, just in order to survive, you had to be fit. You had to be able to do certain things that required you to move. You were on your feet all day. Your life was very physically active. So fitness is not a trend. You know, nobody could ever say that physical fitness working out is a trend. Yet you do see trends. You do see trends in fitness. And not just trends like, oh, the Cato diet. The Cato Kalen diet. The Cato Kalen the Keto the Keto Kalen diet. It means that you watch OJ Simpson stab his wife to death and it makes you so sick that you never want to eat anything ever again and you lose weight that way. It's the Keto Kalen diet. File that under some of the worst jokes I've ever made. But, uh, you know, there's trends in diets. There's trends in fitness. What was the big one that, that was big a few years ago? CrossFit. So there's trends in fitness, but fitness itself is not a trend. But there did, there was this, I think you can see trends play out with specific groups of people. And it's kind of what I mean when I say zeitgeist within zeitgeist, where Around that period, too, there was a a lot more attention being brought to being healthy. And yeah, like again, like help, being healthy is something that some people are, some people aren't, some people are more committed to, some people aren't. That's always been the case. It's never changed. But I started to notice that people like me were starting to take more of an interest in fitness People who never had, you know, I played sports growing up, but I was never interested in, interested in fitness as a hobby, fitness as something that I did every day, every other day. I never cared about cultivating discipline or structuring my life around physical fitness. But I started to notice more and more people talking about it. The places that I was paying attention, more and more people were focusing on it. And by around 2015, it was starting to bloom. And I myself was a part of that. There was kind of this new movement among young men, men in in their 20s and 30s, adult men, who were suddenly taking a much deeper interest in fitness. And at that time, I was still partying. You know, I was still living fairly hard. But something just kind of kicked in where I was like, I need to devote more of myself to this thing. And it kind of goes into what I was saying recently about all roads in our culture today kind of lead back to self-help. All media, all content being produced today inevitably veers into this self-help territory. And I myself do that too. And I think this relates to that, this thing about fitness as well as mysticism, spirituality, religion coming back, especially among groups who otherwise weren't engaged by that. And mystical experiences are something that I'm no stranger to in my adult life. The first time that I remember being awash in mystical experiences was when I was 
an older teenager. I would say I was about 19. And of course, that's around the same age that they say some people develop latent mental illness. Oh, your mystical experiences, were, were you experiencing a latent mental illness? It turns out it wasn't. No, it was just, I didn't know what it was. And fortunately, I had a confidant. Fortunately, I had a, a very small but you know open group of people that I could talk to about these things and who they themselves were going through something similar, which itself is a little mini zeitgeist. When you and your friends are all tapped into something similar, experiencing something similar, gravitating in the same direction, that itself is a little microcosm. The fact that you and multiple people that you know are all kind of turning your head in the same direction at once. It's as if you're all responding to the same noise. And I think that's sort of what the zeitgeist is. It's everybody turning their heads. Not everybody, although if you want to talk about the big zeitgeist, the big zeitgeist, you want to talk about the big zeitgeist? If you want to talk about a zeitgeist on the largest scale, yeah, you are talking about everybody turning their heads. But when you talk about just a smaller one, you know, kind of a zeitgeist within the zeitgeist, a certain type of person is responding to a certain noise. And of course, there's no noise, which is why it's so hard to explain this. But still, it's as if everyone heard the same noise, everyone got the same signal and turned their head that way. And some of those heads are turning because they see other people turning their heads. But some of those people are existing in a pure enough place that they simply heard something and they're looking to see where it came from. And, you know, I was talking about the cartoon thing where when I saw the fact that other people were cannibalizing cartoon characters in this wacky way, it made me want to stop doing it. I don't know that I did. I don't think I just stopped. I don't think I let it ruin my fun. But it did make it a little less fun. And I hate that about myself. I don't hate myself, but I hate that about myself that I can let something like that ruin something that was otherwise fun for me. It's that tainted jewel. What I was talking about on the first half of this ice cream sandwich, I was saying how sometimes it's worse when a jewel is tainted because it's still in your possession, but now it feels worthless. Sometimes it's better to feel like a jewel is outright stolen from you because at least the jewel retains its value. At least the thing that you were interested in still has its value, even though it was taken from you. Sometimes it's a far worse punishment to just have that jewel become tainted or tarnished because now you have to carry it around or do something with it. But it just it, it, it no longer shimmers like it did. And that is something I don't like about myself, that I can allow something like that to ruin my fun. And trust me, I've tried to find a way around it. I've tried to figure out a way to not let this happen sometimes, and I've just had to accept that it happens. Sometimes something ruins my fun, but you know what? That just means you have to move on. You have to find other things that are fun. 
If you're going to let yourself ruin your own fun, it means you have to find more fun. And sometimes it takes more effort trying to make something fun again that has lost its fun than it does just to let it go and move on to something else and look for more fun in the future, baby. But there are other examples where fitness is a good example where at some point I realized that there was this new trend toward fitness. People who otherwise weren't the sort of person who spends all their time in the gym, the sort of person who doesn't spend all their time saying, today you need to get it. You need to wake up and get it. Oh, did you count your steps today? You count your steps? Did you count your steps today? Oh, what's your deadlift? What's your deadlift? You know, there's a, a certain sort of culture around that. And so it was interesting to feel myself being a part of this other group. And I mean, I've always been into sports. So, you know, I'm, I'm definitely somewhat of a jock. But still, to find myself gravitating toward fitness... And it wasn't just because I wanted to look good. It wasn't just because I wanted to actually be healthy. I just felt a calling. I felt like I, there was a need. I felt like I have to do this. I have to do this. And to find out that this was happening to many people who otherwise weren't tapped into that culture, who otherwise weren't trying to lose a bunch of weight, who weren't trying to impress all the girls, who weren't trying to do this or that, who just felt a calling. A calling toward discipline, toward fitness. You know, that was an interesting one because my response to that, when I realized that that was something that was going on, my response wasn't to stop doing it. My response was to continue doing it. And in some way, it enhanced the fact that I was doing it. Because I like the fact that there are other people doing something that is good for them. I like to hear about other people developing discipline. And I was so early on in my own process of developing that discipline that hearing about other people doing it was cool. It was nice to know that I wasn't the only one doing that. Because I didn't have anybody in my life who was. Yeah, I could have gone to the gym and made friends. I had friends who value their health, who value fitness. But there was nobody in my immediate circle. There was nobody that I considered a regular part of my life who cared at all about any of those things. And in fact, they veered the opposite way. So when I found out that other people were hearing that call, it actually enhanced what I was doing because I was like, hey, you know, hey, this is good for other people. It's good for me. It seems like the more people that do this, the better life is going to be in general. And that plays into the mysticism and spirituality and religion as well. Where a few years ago, Jason Louv kept talking about the occult trend. And we all noticed the witchy girls. Probably around 2014, it goes back to that end of the Obama presidency, I noticed like more and more girls calling themselves witches jokingly, but then that joke sort of turned into a reality. And I've always known Wiccan girls. I've always been very well aware of girls who are dedicated to Wicca. She's dedicated to Wicca. Dedicated to Wicca. Wicca, Wicca, Wicca. (laughs) Uh, 
I've, I've always known girls like that, like neo-pagan, Wiccan sort of girls. Men too. But the witch thing came out, and girls who otherwise weren't into occultism, who would never have called themselves witches, were kind of half-jokingly calling themselves witches and getting a little bit occulty, starting to use a little more symbolism, starting to light more candles. It wasn't completely new-agey, but there was a lot of new-age crossover to it. I was cool with it. Why would I have a problem with that? It doesn't really make a difference to me one way or another, and I never really had any in-depth conversations with it, uh, about it with too many people. But Jason Louv is somebody who's immersed in occultism. You know, he's dedicated his life to both the research and practice of magic and occultism. So he's somebody who would be especially aware of the trends in that field of interest. And I was aware of it, too, as somebody who has always peripherally paid attention to the occult, to what's going on in the occult. I'm not a practitioner, necessarily, of quote-unquote occultism. Eh, I mean, I might be, but, you know, I, I don't call myself that. But uh, Jason Louv, in interviews for a period, I remember him mentioning, he's like, all the kids in L.A., and I, I went to L.A., and I saw it, too, and I saw it around here in its own way, where there was just kind of a a phase, you know, as part of the zeitgeist, more and more people were at least adorning themselves with the symbols of occultism. They were wanting to express an identity. You started to see more occulty tattoos. And that's part of that zeitgeist. That interest is part of that zeitgeist. It's a microcosm. But that interest, that growing interest in occultism, that kind of casual interest in occultism in the mid-2000s, and I mean, it was going strong up until a couple of years ago, it felt like. I don't know if it's still true now. I haven't seen as much of it lately. I don't know. But uh, definitely mid, mid to late 2010s, you saw quite a bit of it, and people who were immersed in that field, people who were invested in that field, were commenting on it, on it a lot. And that was a microcosm because it was part of a larger spiritual zeitgeist. Because, I mean, any zeitgeist is, by its very nature, a spiritual phenomenon, and I promise I will not get into that today. I'm not ready to get into that. But I think you can understand it pretty easily on your own. You know, I think you can understand how the zeitgeist is by its very nature spiritual. It is mystical. And it's been that way for me. And that interest in occultism, this sort of 20-something girl who's into occultism, this 30-year-old guy. Now, here's what it is. 25-year-old girl who calls herself a witch and listens to ethereal music, and has some books with cool symbols on her bookshelf. She has a 30-year-old boyfriend who's probably into metal, maybe into, you know, just surface-level experimental music, maybe neo-folk, and he has occult tattoos. That's their identity. And that wasn't them a few years earlier. But now you have these cute occult couples, and they're part of that zeitgeist. But that interest, and, and, and what I'm describing was something that I saw a few years ago, but 
that was just a microcosm of a larger interest in spirituality. You know, I mentioned in the first half of this episode, you know, the, the sort of person who saw Jordan Peterson give a lecture and talk about the Bible, and they realized, oh, I didn't realize that I could be interested in the Bible. I didn't know that that was an option. Because I had just dismissed the aesthetics of Christianity. I had dismissed popular Christianity in American culture, probably for good reason. But I didn't realize that I could actually look at the Bible through fresh eyes and apply it to what I already am and what I've already experienced. I think that there were people who heard Jordan Peterson talk about the Bible, and that's what went on in their brain. And some of it, though, is aesthetic. Some of it is very superficial. You know, some of it is just a new identity to take on. And one of the reasons why Christianity has gotten so popular in the last few years is it has become more and more paganized. People are these these uh, these real whizzes. These real smart guys have been saying for years, oh, do you know that uh, Christianity, quote unquote, borrowed from pagan religions? Did you know that Christmas is actually you, you? People make the, oh, did you know uh, that uh, Christianity stole that? Oh, the idea the Christmas tree came from the... But it's interesting because that's true. You know, Christianity did integrate paganism. I mean, people want to look at it through this kind of colonial crusades point of view where it's like Christianity killed all of their enemies and then integrated their enemies' beliefs into Christianity. Maybe it happened that way. A little a bit of everything. It's not just a, it's not just a one it's not like just one thing happened. And it's not like somebody made a decision. It's not like all of the Christian leadership across the entire world met. Maybe they did. But it's not like they met and they're like, well, what aspects of these pagan peoples that we have conquered, what aspects should we integrate into Christianity for the long haul? A lot of it just kind of naturally forms. A lot of it naturally fits together. And one of the reasons for that is because everything comes from the same source. And even though spiritual outlooks differ, even though religions have different sets of rules, specifically different placeholder names for the same things, but some things are different too. You know, some some things are just fundamentally different, but it all comes from the same source. So of course you would be able to fit these things together. Of course you would be able to take aspects of paganism and it would interlock with Christianity in some way, because at their core, at their root, they're dealing with, if not the same exact thing, something very similar. They're both ways of dealing with the source. They're both ways of understanding the wholeness. They're both ways of understanding life itself. And I mean, you want to talk about the zeitgeist, like, read the Bible, it is filled with with the zeitgeist. It is filled with zeitgeist within zeitgeist within zeitgeist. 
really any spiritual text is. But uh, this kind of newfound interest in Christianity that I've been watching develop, and I have been watching it because it's, it's very interesting to me, both because it parallels and intersects my life, but also just I'm sincerely curious where it's going to go. And I've been saying for years that Christianity has been becoming more and more pagan. And those two things are, uh, I mean, the way that we've, I mean, if you if you look it up in the dictionary, paganism is going to be described as the antithesis of Christianity and other dominant religions. I think that's an outdated definition. And I believe Christianity has become more and more paganized. I believe it is much more like a pagan religion in America today, even though it's very mainstream, even though all of the politicians pay lip service to Christianity. There is an undercurrent. And what you're going to see in the mainstream is never going to be that undercurrent. There is an undercurrent in Christianity, and it is not new but it has picked up considerable steam in the last few years. There is an undercurrent of paganism to it. And people are drawn to Christianity more for its esoteric qualities. People are drawn to Christianity more for its mystical qualities. And that, I I don't know where the Jordan Peterson Bible lectures fit in with that, because that's not what he's focused on. I know in his case... He's looked at the Bible very pragmatically, and he's like, this is filled with knowledge. This is filled with great knowledge, Uh, which is true. But he has looked at it from an intellectual uh, viewpoint, which is not how I look at it. I try not to intellectualize the Bible. I have a friend who's been studying the Bible the last few months, and it's very cool to talk to him about it. But he's much more interested in the different translations, which I don't think about. Like, my experience with the Bible is whatever Bible I encounter is the right Bible for me at that time. When I found a Bible in a lending library, that was the right Bible for me to read at that time. I currently have my mom's Bible that she was given decades ago, her little leather-bound blue Bible, and that's clearly my Bible, you know, the Bible that belonged to my mom that has my birth, my sister's birth, my mom's marriage to my dad, the death of my mom's mom, and the death of my mom's beloved brother. It has all of those dates cataloged in the blank pages at the beginning of the Bible. And to have that is incredible. And I've mentioned it on here, but she also, for whatever reason, wrote the definition of the word create in the beginning of her Bible. And this is Pam Stonefelt decades ago writing this. So I have in my mom's handwriting at the beginning of a Bible, the definition of the word create. And it says to make from nothing, you know, to create something from nothing, essentially. So that's obviously a powerful artifact. Even if I wasn't interested in the Bible, having that is a powerful artifact. It's, I mean, and it plays right into my own mysticism. But, you know, these people who analyze the Bible more academically or intellectually, 
who do want to get in and like talk about the different translations and what was changed, I think that is very important and interesting. But it's not important and interesting to me. For me, my attraction is far more mystical. It's far more experiential. It's far more lowercase g Gnostic. Not capital G Gnostic. Not capital G Gnostic. And the same is true for Buddhism for me too. Where I, I have just dealt with it as I've come into contact with it naturally. I haven't deliberately sought out the best practice. Uh, I, don't, I don't even know how to describe it. I haven't necessarily sought out teachings that I think would speak to me specifically. I naturally gravitate towards Zen. There, I mean, I, I gravitate toward it all, honestly. I, but but there some ideas speak to me more than others. But I've I've never deliberately chosen. I, I guess I haven't intellectualized Buddhism either. For me, it's again far more rooted in mysticism, far more rooted in experience, the transcendental. And just to go back to occultism. I flirted with, you know, I've always been very aware of occultism. My interest led me to, my interest led me to have at least a passing knowledge of occultism from a pretty early age. And a few years ago, I would say around 2016, 2017, I thought to myself, you know, it was around the idea that I was like, I think I need to commit further. I feel like I'm twisted up inside. I feel like I'm in the abyss more often than I'd like. I need to do something to unravel this and at the very least pull part of myself out of the abyss. And so I took a greater interest in spiritual practice because while I always had a relationship with mysticism, I was very undisciplined and I took it for granted. And so I decided that I was no longer going to take it for granted, and I was going to try to develop a discipline. And that's what led me to meditation. And in a funny way, occultism led me to Buddhism. I was aware of pop Buddhism, but I I always rejected it for aesthetic reasons, because of who I associated it with. But occultism actually led me to Buddhism, and I discovered that what I was looking for in occultism was actually found in Buddhism, or or better explained to me in Buddhism. And of course, why limit it to one? You know, all of these things played a role, and other things as well that I don't need to get into here. Other practices, other ideas, other philosophies. I've gotten into how Norse paganism influences me as well, although that one is more just something you feel in your blood if you if you have Norse heritage that's that there's nothing I mean there's that one's not even it's it's not intellectual and it's barely mystical Norse paganism to me is just 
flesh and blood. That's all I really think of. I think of the earth and flesh and blood when I think of my relationship to Norse paganism, which is very important to me too. But it's if if there's any intellectual interest in Christianity or Buddhism or occultism, it's uh, it's definitely it pales next to the mystical for me. But with Norse paganism, neither of them matter. I don't care to intellectualize it, and I don't care to access the mystical because it's simply me. It's simply flesh and blood and earth. That's how I see it. But all of this was part of a larger zeitgeist toward mysticism, spirituality, and religion over recent years. And while some people flirted with occultism, other people have recently become baptized Catholics out of nowhere. I mean, I found out about a guy that I knew through noise music, and he was baptized last year. So that's a great example of what I mean. And he also got in great shape. He's a guy that I'd call him, you know, maybe a friend, more of an acquaintance, definitely a friend of a friend, and a guy that I've known for years who is involved in weird music. And he's not only, I mean, he does jujitsu, he's in great shape. And a, a, a mutual friend told me that he was baptized Catholic last year. He's basically an all-American male. He went from being this kind of weird, artsy dude to being this full-on all-American male. White picket fence, wife and children. He's a firefighter. He is a jujitsu fighter. And he's now a, a baptized Catholic. And what he was responding to was that zeitgeist. And he and I, we have a mutual friend, my friend Robert. And Robert, out of all the friends I've ever had, he is the most acutely aware of the zeitgeist. He can see it coming 10 years, 15 years in advance. He's the guy, I mean, if I had to write the story of the sky is falling, whatever that is, that chicken, chicken little, is that what that is? Chicken little? Whatever the story is about the, the little chicken who's running around saying the sky is falling. That's my friend Robert. Not that he's necessarily warning people, but he's telling people what's going to happen. And then it happens. And I mean, what do you do then? If you're him, what do you do? <laughs> you know, what, what do you do then? I mean, I, I know speaking for myself, you don't get hung up on the zeitgeist, but it's hard not to pay attention to it. It's hard not to be preoccupied by it. It's hard not to feel like you are always living in your own little private zeitgeist, because guess what you are? You are always living in your own little private zeitgeist. Your life itself is a zeitgeist. And that word is going to lose all meaning, and that's what I want. I hope the word zeitgeist loses all of its meaning by the end of this episode. But no, you can see your life as one of those microcosms. Because if you yourself are a participant in the zeitgeist, and the zeitgeist is made up of smaller zeitgeists, I feel like you can eventually keep opening nesting dolls 
And finally, you will be there. And then you find out that your body is filled with its own smaller zeitgeists. There are trends happening within your body. I mean, think about losing hair. My hair's fallen out. One day, one of my hairs fell out and decided that it was never going to grow back. And then a bunch of them made the same decision. That sounds like the zeitgeist to me. The zeitgeist, as far as my head is concerned, the zeitgeist is hair loss. Cancer is the zeitgeist inside of your body. Sickness. But so is health. So is when you build muscle. And all of it relates, you know. It's, it's like when you do something to improve one part of your body, you're actually improving other parts of your body. And you can look at the zeitgeist the same way. Where there are negative movements, there are destructive movements within every zeitgeist. But it doesn't necessarily make the whole of it bad. And you can look at something where, oh, hey, a group of people who otherwise weren't engaged by their own physical health have taken an interest in physical health. That's a positive, that's a good trend. That's the zeitgeist moving in a positive direction, moving things in a, in a positive direction. Or maybe that's people themselves moving the zeitgeist in a positive direction. Maybe everything is moving everything else. So you can't really say the zeitgeist is the thing that's moving people, and you can't say that people themselves are the thing that's moving that zeitgeist. Everybody's kind of playing their part. Everything is playing its part. But you can see where you look at positive trends and you say, it's a good thing that a new group of people, and actually a bunch of different groups of people, have taken an interest in their physical health. You can look at people and say, it's a good thing that entirely new, unexpected groups of people have taken an interest in their spiritual health and are willing to look in places that they previously hadn't looked. Because those are always the places that you need to look. And what's funny about that is sometimes you, you look there. Sometimes you're like, oh, I'm going to go look in this spot where I've never looked. And it turns out everybody else decided to look at that spot too. And if it's a plentiful enough resource, if it's your health, if it's your spirit, then it's a good thing that everybody decided to look at that same spot at the same time. But if it's not a plentiful resource, like people who are trying to carve out a niche for themselves by drawing chopped and screwed cannibalized cartoon characters, you might say, okay, you know, I don't need to look over there anymore. And maybe that's a symptom of something bad too. Because I think that's somewhere, you know... Somewhere in my tiny, clenched stomach muscle, I don't know what I'm saying. Somewhere, somewhere in my tiny, clenched stomach muscles, I don't, even, I don't even know what that means. 
somewhere in the pit of my stomach is kind of what I was trying to say. Somewhere in the pit of my stomach, when I find out that I'm participating in the zeitgeist and it makes me feel insecure or somehow less unique, less myself, that's usually a sign that whatever's going on in that part of the zeitgeist probably is something that you shouldn't pay much attention to. It probably is something that you shouldn't participate in. But when you find yourself gravitating in a certain direction, and it's something that you just know is objectively good for you, that you know is objectively good for other people, well, hey, at that point, it doesn't matter whether it's your own private zeitgeist or everyone's zeitgeist. Because the result is something good. And there's nothing better than a good zeitgeist, whether it's private to you or whether it's something you share with everybody. And I don't know that you really have much say in that matter anyway. I'm finding out that I don't. This land is mine God gave this land to me This brave, this golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children can